0: Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength... He does his best to promote separation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that today Satan is succeeding. The fractions and factions within the body of Christ seem to be ever increasing but what's interesting is that those divisions aren't necessarily only taking place on a theological level. They're taking place uh, along ethnic and gender and socio-economic uh, and socio-political lines as well. And, and I'm just naming a few, of course, um, So much so that the term and really the overused term of tribalism is being used to describe the growing number of groups or factions within the body as well as outside the body. And it's being used to describe the growing intensity of the so-called in-group loyalty that's that's taking place within those groups. Again, both inside and outside of the church. But what I found really, really interesting, and maybe you have too, is is that the calls to combat this—again, I don't want to—I'm going to overuse the word as well—to to combat this tribalism—have uh, been calls to focus on and seek out or create a greater diversity within our churches. And I find that interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is. The call to focus on or to seek or to create diversity is really a call to focus on our differences. And it really seems that that's the problem in the first place. And then secondly, if, if we're going to be honest, we, I think we have to say that, and really most important, that the call to focus on or create diversity is really not a scriptural call as close as Scripture comes, is to call us to indiscriminately share the gospel and to love and not show partiality toward our neighbor. And the result of that is, or or would be, or or will be, diversity. But it will be created without focusing on it. In reality, the remedy or the solution or the problem of fractions and factions and tribalism within the church is not to focus on the diversity, but to maintain our unity. Because the unity, if you think about it, unity itself assumes several things. One, a call to unity assumes diversity. There's no need to call for unity if there's no diversity. Uh, The call to unity also assumes that the church is fulfilling those commands to indiscriminately share the gospel. The call to unity assumes that we are uh, being impartial to those around us and to one another and to our neighbor. Unity assumes uh, that Christ is building his church from what he said he would do from every tribe, race and nation. Every tribe and tongue and nation and race. And in other words, unity acknowledges that differences exist. Or the call to unity acknowledges that. But rather than focus on the differences, the call to unity asks us, well, what happens when we focus on diversity is we focus on our differences. And then what happens is we begin to turn those differences into something that are, that's sacred, And what Paul does is he says, look, don't focus on creating diversity. Don't focus on your differences. Focus on what you share in common. Maintain unity. And as we'll see, he says, as we maintain unity by exhibiting certain qualities of, of unity. And we also build upon a foundation of what we share in common. So we're going to focus on unity, focus on the qualities of that unity, and we're going to focus on that foundation. And so this first thing is interesting because in the first part, we're moving out of that, that transition, out of that declarative, and out of, out of that indicative into this imperative of the, of the commands of Scripture. And, he, and he's going to start immediately by saying, I want you to walk the talk, But while you walk the talk, I want you to maintain unity. The walking of of the talk is is not a creating of unity. It's something that we are to maintain. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But let's let's stand together in the honor of God's word. And let's read together uh, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4. We've already heard the entire chapter that Matt read to us. But let's... Uh, let's read verses 1 to 6, and again, our, our outline tonight is going, we're going to look at the call to unity, uh, the qualities of unity, and the foundation of unity. Hear now the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find there. And I'd ask, Father, that you would, in these moments, so that we... Um, would hear, that you would speak to us through what you have already spoken. Father, that the truth would be planted deep within our hearts and that it might bring forth fruit. I'd ask, Father, that you would bring us by your Spirit under the authority of your Word, that you would bend our wills to yours. We thank you for loving us enough to reveal more of yourself to us. We pray that in these moments we might be changed. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. So as is his custom, Paul begins this section with the word, therefore. So, Everything that he's about to say, of course, is following up on what he's already said. And it would be possible, there are a couple of options here that the therefore looks back to chapter 3. Uh, but really, I think because we're beginning this new section and this this command section or this imperative section, that he's really looking back on everything that he's said in the prior three chapters. So I've kind of summarized this a little bit because I want us to, uh, to kind of... Um, well, just summarize and so that we know in uh, having a foundation before we move ahead into this imperative section. But I think we could read it this way. Paul says, because you were all given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, because you've all been forgiven and redeemed, because you've all uh, been adopted, uh, because you've all, if we take us back, because you've all been chosen prior to the foundation of the world. Uh, Because you've all been guaranteed an inheritance through the Spirit and you've all been sealed by that Spirit. Uh, Because you were all dead spiritually and have been all raised to life. Because you were all once confined and you've all been set free. Uh, Because you were all created and recreated for good works. Uh, Because you were all uh, reconciled to Him and to one another. Because Uh, You all now are fellow citizens and heirs of the kingdom. And because you all are being fitted together into a dwelling place for the Lord. Walk the talk. He says, walk in a manner. He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. I want you, in other words, because God has done for all of you what he's done for you. And because of who you all are in Christ. Basically, I'm, he says, I'm not simply asking. I'm begging. That you do or, and you live in such a way that honors that calling. He, really, he's saying these are not suggestions. I'm imploring you right now to live the life that corresponds with, that's in balance with this calling. You've been called to this. And it, So it's not an option. But notice the this, this summons is not only to walk the talk and to live like people who've been, de, been declared to be in Christ, but the, the summons is to walk the talk. And while you do, I want you and you need to maintain the unity among ourselves. Look at, look at verse uh, 1 and 3. I, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, Paul doesn't say walking the talk is equivalent to creating diversity or creating unity. Paul's point is that the unity will be necessary as we walk the talk. Unity is a must, and we must maintain it. I, he says, I urge you to walk and to live in Christ as you've been declared to be in Christ, and as you do, the words there be diligent. Have a holy zeal for be fully dedicated to preserving the unity now there are four things that I want us to just focus on or just think about as we as we walk through this or as we think about the statement that he 's just made. One is this: uh, the unity already exists right for something to be maintained and to be preserved it has to already. Be in existence. So he's not asking them to create anything. He's not asking them to work towards something. He's not, trying to, he's not asking them to manufacture the unity that he desires. He's simply saying that it's already there. I want you to maintain it. And so that leads us to the second point. That unity is a work of the Spirit. The unity that he's talking about and he write, is writing about. It already exists by the Spirit. It's something that the Spirit has created within them and between them. It's something because because of our common salvation, because that spirit indwells all of us, because the spirit uh, seals all of us and we've been united to Christ. We're therefore united to one another. And because of because of that adoption and so harmony already exists and the the call is to hold that together, which is the third part. It's going to take work. He says this is we're not creating the unity. But maintaining it is going to take work. It's going to take a great deal of effort. Why? Because of our sin. Because of the ongoing battle between flesh and spirit. Uh, and also, I mean then as well as now, because the qualities that we're going to look at in just a few seconds are very, very countercultural. What, it, what is necessary to maintain the unity is difficult. And like I said, uh, or as Spurgeon said, you know, we're under attack. Our enemy, Satan, does not want us to maintain that unity. And notice too, fourthly, that it takes place within the context of the local church. And he's not talking about unity that, that exists between churches, like we're trying to model here with us and and the the Nazarenes. He's not talking about um, uh, unity between uh, ministries outside of here. He's not even talking about our uh, maintaining unity with us in the community. He's not talking about us maintaining um, some type of unity between us and non-believers. Though those things are important and they're stressed in other parts of Scripture. That's not what he's talking about here. And, and we need to understand, what, what is he talking about specifically here? He's talking about the unity within the local church. So how, how are we to preserve it? What is, how are we going to do that? Well, he covers that in verse 2 and verses 4 to 6. In verse 2, he shares with us the qualities of unity. Verse 2 says, "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love." And what I want to do is just walk through these and and define them and give a few examples, if that's all right. He begins, of course, with humility. And as I was sharing with the children, two basic meanings. One is to have a proper estimation of oneself. In other words, we don't want to look at ourselves in too high a position, we don't want to look at ourselves in too low a position. And the second is, uh, it carries the meaning of treating one another as more important than ourselves, even to the point of treating them as royalty, and thus the crowns. Looking at one another as royalty. And so it means, when we think about that, we're putting the needs of others before our own. It means not believing that you need to be, nor do you strive to be, the center of everyone's time and care and attention. It means uh, you want the needs of others to receive the time and the, uh, and the attention that they require. It means that we want to see the talents and the abilities um, of others to be put on display more than we want that of ourselves. It means celebrating when others are ministered to even though we might feel like at times that we've been overlooked. It means setting your preferences and even your needs aside for a time that you might minister to others. C.S. Lewis, of course, many of you have probably already heard this or read this before, but C.S. Lewis says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And in the words of a tweet I read this week, I... I'm just telling you that it's not original with me. I can't remember his name. But it's not simply doing what it takes to live with each other, you know, doing life. It's, it's doing whatever it takes to live for each other. Let that sink in a little bit. There's a difference in living with and living for. The second word is gentleness, and it means meekness or mildness. And uh, kids, um, anybody ridden a horse? Anybody ridden a horse? Okay, good. I, I was astonished when I first started riding horses, and we would go hunting in Colorado, and uh, we would be getting the horses ready to go as we would hunt uh, before we would hunt. And I was trying to, you know, get the bridle on and everything fixed, and worried about the and the horse was, you know, always kind of fighting back against me and. And, you know, how powerful horses are. And and I remember my buddy Steve said, just take the rope and just lay it over the back of its neck. I said, but don't you want me to put it around his neck and tie it to the trailer? Wouldn't that be more profitable? He said, just lay the rope. Just listen to me and lay the rope along the back of the neck. Draped it over the back of the neck and the horse just stopped. Had been trained to believe that that rope being laid over the back of the neck was actually tied around it and tied to the trailer he didn 't know any better, but that that strength under control that's that's gentleness strength under control uh, it means quietness, mildness restraint, and it 's that, that power under control and that control under pressure so it's, it means dealing with people kindly. And gently and not roughly it's it involves empathetic empathetic and compassionate encouragement rather than criticism it means or uh, it involves walking alongside and assisting others and it means um you know it, Rather than exercising force and making these heavy handed demands, it's about coming alongside and encouraging people to God honoring standards and Jesus exalting standards rather than your own personal, you know, anyone conforming to your own personal agenda. That's gentleness. Then he says, of course, patience, being long tempered. It it takes a while to get angry. It means slow to react at the faults of others. It's, it's understanding and remembering that we're all on a different pace and all in a different place spiritually. It means uh, pausing long enough to consider unknown circumstances or factors that may be playing in to why somebody said something or treated you in a particular way. It means... It means not jumping to conclusions and seeking to clarify what's going on and the intentions of others. Patience. He then says it's also, well, another another thing about patience, it's also giving other people the benefit of the doubt rather than jumping to conclusions. Then he says it's, Another quality is bearing with one another. Really just means tolerance. Making an, an allowance for others' faults. and It means bearing with their weaknesses and failings. It means showing respect with others even when you disagree. It means... Treating others with value and worth regardless of their positions or regardless of their opinions. It means recognizing that in the midst of discussions there are primary and secondary issues of agreement and disagreement. And being able to discern what those are. It means being willing to dialogue about differences and to do that amicably. Because you have the good of the other person in mind. And why is that? Well, it's the last quality. He says it's love. Love is is looking out for the best interest of the other person. Uh, Love is that, that unconditional overflow of immeasurable love that God has expressed and continues to express to you and to me. That love that we talked about last week that is beyond description. And out of the overflow, out of the abundance that we've received, we express that to others. Now, I'm, I'm sure you noticed, as I did, as you're reading through those qualities, uh, those qualities are in sharp contrast to what we see and hear today. You don't have to spend a lot of time on any of the news channels or on social media to see Wendy put it this way, she got home this week and she said, "You know, it seems like everyone is out to pick a fight." And it's either on TV or when you're behind the wheel. you, do want, you know you hesitate one second at a light, and the horns start blaring. And you look at don't make eye contact. people are angry and so these qualities like i said they're they're countercultural as one commentator put it he said our western culture indulges our self-promoting view that being opinionated, aggressive and ambitious for ourselves and our families is a good thing and that's really a lot of what we see on social media right He goes on to say, but such arrogance is really a sin that strangles the growth of a church because we end up pulling our church in different directions. Paul's calling the Ephesians and he's calling us to a different way of life. Because of who we are, because of where where we were and who we were, and because of where we are now and who we are now, he's saying it should not be that way. We shouldn't be out looking to pick a fight all the time. We ought to be exercising these qualities. We should be living differently. Not only among ourselves, but for the watching world to see. We, we live differently because we're being watched. And notice, as I've already mentioned, what enables them to live in this way is not by focusing on their differences, but focusing on what unites them. Because what unites them far outweighs... How they're different. Look at what he says in verse 4. Look at the foundation of unity. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Kiddos, if you're counting the number of words that I say and what I say most often, I just said the word one seven times. There are seven ones, seven important things that they hold in common that far outweigh their obedience, or that far outweigh their differences. And these these seven things, they should be able if they if they focus their attention on these things, they should be able to maintain the unity in the midst of walking the talk. It should have their full attention because again, they're stronger than the differences that exist. And really, these seven things, these, this foundation of unity becomes really who they are. It, it's their identity, and, and, and it's these seven things that provide their identity more so than any of the other differences from which they were getting their identity to begin with. So when we think of today, or we think of even, even then, we talked about this, because remember, he, he's coming out of this having just talked about the fact that they were both Jew and Gentile, and how they've now been made one new man. And so what he's doing, what he's doing, because we said last week, he's praying, he prays in chapter three for their sanctification. And so now he says, as you're about to move into this, uh, you know, as as you go through this sanctification process, he says, I want you to know that that the number one tool or the number one means of your sanctification is going to be each other and your differences. And so, as you're being sanctified by one another in your differences, he said, you need to look beyond those differences to what unites you. So, seven things he says: first, they are a part of one church, one, universe, one local church, but one universal church. They are a part of one body of which Christ is the head. One body. Second, he says, there's only one spirit that has been given to them. And, and energizes them, right? one spirit that sealed them, one spirit uh, that has uh, then sealed their salvation has been given to them as a down payment for their, uh, uh, the down payment of the inheritance of their salvation as the consummation of all things. And so because they share that fellowship with the same spirit, they have fellowship with one another. He then says there's only one hope that they all hold dear. They're all looking forward to that time when Christ returns. Their hope hope is eternal life in the Lord. There's one glorious day that we're going to sing about in a minute. One glorious day when He returns and everything will be made new and they will all be like Him. Same for us. We share that same hope with one another. We're looking forward to that day. Fourth, he says, There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom our sins were paid. There's only one way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other Savior, there is no no other mediator. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. We share Him in common. He says, There is only one faith. it could be the faith that, that um, has been credited to us as righteousness. Or it could be the content of the faith that's been once for all handed down to the saints. And that, that faith that, um, that, you know, that Jesus is the Son of the living God upon you know, that confession the church is being built. Either way, one faith. One faith in Christ. One faith handed down that we believe in that we'll confess in just a minute. We confess that together because we believe that together. We have that in common together. He says one baptism. There's one baptism, not two baptisms. There's one baptism of the Spirit in which we are united or engrafted into Christ. And having been united to Him, we're united to each other. And our union is is not in anybody or anything else. And finally, he says there is one God who is over all or sovereign. There is one God who is uh, through all or, or all powerful. He's in all. He's fully present at all places and all times. And we have a relationship with that God. He has adopted us. We are His children. He is our Father. And that's something that Paul has repeated over and over and over again. So we're a part of one Family, We're united together in that family. So, As you read through that, as we read through that, we realize that basically Paul's saying, look, you're united by a triune God. You're united in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There are three persons, one God in perfect unity. And really, when we think about it, he's calling us to maintain the unity that, guess what, that that Jesus prayed that we would experience in John 17. He's calling us to that. So it should be something that we maintain. And so I, I began by saying that the answer to the fractions and the factions and the tribalism isn't to focus our attention on diversity, But I hope you've also realized that I haven't said that the answer is to focus on how we might be more united either. I've been very purposeful because Paul is very purposeful. Our goal is to maintain unity, not by focusing on unity itself, not by focusing on diversity, but by focusing on what we have in common. Listen to this quote by A.W. Tozier. He says, hundred pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So one hundred worshippers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. The answer to the fractions and the factions isn't becoming unity conscious or unity driven just as much as it isn't becoming diversity conscious and diversity driven. The answer is to focus on what we share in common. What do we share in common? Because even focusing on unity itself becomes a distraction to the one in whom we find our unity. Oh, that we would look to Christ who was the greatest example of humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and love. Oh, that we would look to Christ who was not only humble and gentle and patient and tolerant and loving toward us, but He was all those things for us. Oh, that we would look to Christ who continues to be gentle and patient and tolerant and loving. Oh, that we would look to Christ and and that we would be humble and patient and gentle and tolerant and loving toward others, toward one another. Oh, that we would be quick to reconcile with those in our body who we are currently at odds with. Because think about this. If, If God has been humble and gentle and patient and tolerant and loving toward them, who are we not to be? God's been far more offended by them than you will ever be. Who are we to not express that same thing? Oh, that we might focus on what unifies us rather than our differences. And I'm not saying that we ignore them. I'm not saying that we don't act like they don't exist. That's, that's the beauty of it. We, we hold to, we recognize, we, we, can, we can appreciate the differences that we all have. But it's not what defines us. Those things are not what defines us. They are things that we hold dear all the time, looking beyond those things to what we have in common. And oh, that we would rest in Christ when we fail to do what He's calling us to do here. Right? That we would look to Christ when we fail in all these areas. May we remember who we are in Him and that our success and our failure in, in exhibiting these qualities and our success and failure and, in being unified. Uh, they. Our successor figure does not determine our standing. That's why we started with the first 3 chapters. Because we get to chapter 4 and it's a daunting task. But what do we do? We rest in Christ. Resting in Christ in the midst of this call. And though Satan might when we fail, Satan might persecute us when we do, but remember, he cannot prosecute us because we have an advocate in the Lord Jesus. And I would pray that we would, we would have to continually remind ourselves of the need to maintain unity. Not because, because of division. But I pray that we would have to continually remind ourselves to maintain unity because of our ever-growing diversity that comes from our indiscriminate proclamation of the gospel in our our growing love and in and far and, and because we're not impartial when it comes to who we ex- extend that love to as far as our neighbor is concerned as that indiscriminate proclamation as that impartiality grows our diversity would grow and i pray that we would have to continue to remind ourselves let's maintain the unity